Welcome to Excavate, Uncovering Our Place in God's Story. I'm Heather Strongmore. And I'm Jamie Dawn. And in this week's episode, we are talking about the matriarchs. We hear a lot about the patriarchs, about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we don't as often hear about our matriarchs of Sarah, Hagar, Rebecca, and Leah. They have amazing stories. So today, that's what we're going to be talking about. I'm so excited. Let's dig in. So Jamie, as I've been thinking about this episode and this section, I do think we so often assume that the patriarchs are the primary mediators of God's presence. Um, Because we do have, of course, significant stories about them. Abraham has several interactions with God around the Abrahamic covenant and not as much Isaac, but then Jacob has significant interactions with God of wrestling with him, et cetera. So those stories are very real and they're significant and very important in the history of God's people. But when we only talk about those stories, then we assume that the women are just bystanders and pretty voiceless and specifically that their relationship with God is mediated by their husbands, that they don't have any kind of direct line to connect with God, that God isn't trying to reach out to them personally. So what I want us to focus on is their experiences. They each have really unique experiences of God meeting them directly without their husbands necessarily being specifically involved. Yes. I love that part of the stories and, um, And just that they're mentioned at all. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. so often we read this in our American context and we forget that to ancient Near East uh, listeners and to uh, like the first century Jews, this, as soon as a woman's name was mentioned, that kind of would have been more of um, like a siren going off for them Mm -hmm. of, wow, that's really significant that we know the name of that wife and that story. And so I think it's important for us to hear it through the eyes um, and ears of people who would have first been hearing these stories where um, hearing the names of women in and of itself would be a powerful experience, let alone what you said about like they have their own encounters with God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. All right. Well, we are going to be reading multiple passages this time, and we'll be doing that more and more moving forward. So for those of y'all who are listening, perhaps multitasking or driving in your car, we will go ahead and read the passage aloud so that you can follow it along. Um, If you are someone who is able to be sitting and prefers to have your Bible open in front of you, we welcome that too. So we want to make sure wherever you are, you're connecting with the word along with us. So we are going to start with Sarah, and we're going to look at one particular story in Genesis 12. And it's a story of Abraham and Sarah. They, their names haven't been changed yet by God. So it's still Abram and Sarai. And it's before a whole lot of things have happened before she has Isaac. And this is just still the two of them. And so we're going to read Genesis 12, 10 through 20. So I'm going to read that right now. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. 
Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So this is an interesting story. We, I read this with students in my, uh, the college ministry that I lead a few months ago, and they were like, this is toxic. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> no lies detected. Um, so what's so interesting and kind of sad is Abram in this story is acting out of fear and self-preservation. So he's worried that because Sarai is beautiful, that the Egyptians are just going to want to kill him so that they can marry her. And so out of his own desire for self-preservation and honestly, his own doubt in God, mm -hmm. he decides like, let's kind of stage a ruse. Let's say you're my sister and then I won't be as threatening to them. They won't have anything against me. And as a result, he kind of functionally pimps Sarah out mm -hmm. um, that then Pharaoh takes her to be his wife and Abrams just does nothing about that. And Abrams just on the sidelines. And what I think is really beautiful about what the Lord does is the Lord is the one who intercedes for Sarah. He sees that she is being, um, marginalized that she's in this really toxic situation that she's being exploited whether intentionally or unintentionally by Abram. And the Lord's like, I'm not going to let that happen. And so it's God who steps in and sends plagues on Pharaoh's house and is, gives these alarm bells to Pharaoh where he's like, wait a second, what's the deal? This seems like some kind of supernatural thing that's happening. It's interesting that Pharaoh mm -hmm. identifies it as supernatural. Yes. And then he's like, this something shady is going on. This needs to stop. And then he, uh, get, you know, allows Sarah to leave and gives her back to Abram. Um, but yeah, it's such a crappy situation that Sarah's in and Abram's just so passive and God is the one that has to step in. Yeah. I love, um, how I've heard people say the Bible doesn't always tell us very clearly, like what God thinks about something. It doesn't say, and God disapproved of this mm. necessarily, but God shows, um, and illustrates things in scripture. And I think that's so clear in the story where we might say, I wish that it said like, and God was really mad that Abraham, <laughs> that Abram did that. And, yeah. um, and it, it doesn't say that, but it is very clear. Like you said, in it's so clear to Pharaoh that someone who's not a follower of Yahweh says, this is a supernatural experience. And so I think that's such a picture to me of the way that the Lord illustrates in scripture. Like, I really care about what's happening here so much so that mm -hmm. I'm going to set off alarm bells, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And to me, that would be, if I'm putting myself in Sarah's shoes, I think that would be really moving that she's has to go along with the decision her husband is making 
we don't necessarily see her having a lot of autonomy or decision-making power in this situation. And so for her to watch the Lord step in to defend her, to me, mm-hmm. would be so encouraging. Um, and at this point, it, earlier in this same chapter, God has made his first covenant with Abraham. He started to make mm-hmm. his promises with him. They haven't sealed the covenant yet, um, but God has promised him descendants. And so if I'm Sarah, I actually, I think for me, this would confirm that I'm supposed to be part of that story, that she's mm-hmm. not interchangeable, that it's not just any woman that this can happen with, um, that it's meant to be her, that it's meant to be her as his wife. Um, and actually that's going to come into play later when we talk about <laughs> Hagar. Um, but like God is trying to show them, yes. I need both of you here and right. you're both crucial to this plan. And I'm going to make sure that you're both protected. So the plan can move forward. I think something that has always intrigued me about this story is that it's repeated in their family lineage. Mm -hmm. And that seems so crazy to me, but I think again, it's, we're supposed to learn from this, like that we are a people who are forgetful and who, um, I think we see that thread kind of like we were talking about of there's something really significant about the way that en- the enemy tries to remove women from the story of God. And yet God keeps making sure that mm-hmm. the women are a part of the story. And so I think the fact that we see that multiple times in this family story is mm-hmm. really significant. Yeah. Dang. That's such a good point. Yeah. If, if you're unfamiliar with what Jamie's mentioning, there's a generational pattern that's going to emerge. We won't have time to talk about it today. Um, but Isaac, their son, Isaac does the exact same thing with his wife, (laughs) Rebecca. It's to the point where at one time, at one point when I was just reading through Genesis, I literally was like, wait, didn't I already read this? (laughs) I thought like I was in the wrong chapter because it's this complete deja vu of just history repeating of Isaac repeating this same generational pattern of they go to Egypt because of famine. And he tells everyone Rebecca is his sister because he's scared for his own life. Um, so yeah, that is a sad generational pattern that emerges from their, their doubt and certainly specifically Abraham's doubt. Um, Mm -hmm. and yet, yes, I love that God is stepping in and not allowing that to be the only narrative about them. Uh, one more thing I want to say about Sarah that maybe will get us into, um, Hagar, but I think something that we often do And I honestly think it's our own self-contempt sometimes where we see stories of scripture and we kind of want to heap contempt on some of the people that we see. Mm. But I, I think so often we see Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarah, I still in this story, but, um, Mm. we see them and we see their unfaithfulness, like in the story. And we think this is so crazy. Why are they doing that? (laughs) Um, but that's not the Lord's narrative at the end of the day on it, because in Hebrews 11, Sarah is recounted as a woman of faith. And so yeah. even though she does what we'll read next, mm-hmm. uh, which is not really full of faith, um, at the end of the day, the Lord sees like a glimmer and a flicker of that fan, that flame of faith in her. And he's like, actually, that's enough for me. And mm-hmm. so where we often uh, kind of heap that story of they are so faithless. 
at the end of the day, the Lord recounts in Hebrews 11 that they are so full of faith and that they are a hero because of it. And Mm so Sarah is remembered as a woman who was full of faith, even in the midst of her mess and Mm -hmm. being really an oppressor, which is a a little bit challenging. But um, Mm -hmm. I think there's something very beautiful about that to me. And I think what I would hope that others would hear is that even in those moments where all we have left is like a tiny flicker of that mm-hmm. flame that the Lord actually sees that. And he counts that as something really rich and beautiful and maybe bigger than what we think it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. And I think related to that, another one more thing I want to point out in this passage as well is that God basically enacts a small version of the Exodus Mm-hmm. in this story that he sends a plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt because his daughter is in captivity essentially. Yes. Um, and that Pharaoh says, go out from my house. And he allows them to take all the, the wealth that they've accumulated with them. Um, and so it is this very interesting foreshadow of the Exodus and of God showing himself faithful and trustworthy, like worthy of that spark of faith. And to me, I would, I would think back on this story as I think about, and we'll talk about this in future episodes, uh, but the Israelites in captivity in Egypt in Mm -hmm. the future, that this is a story that they could have clung to at the time of looking back and saying, our mother, Sarah was Mm -hmm. once a captive to Pharaoh and God sent plagues and allowed her to go free and ensured her freedom. And that is the God that we believe in. That's the God we cling to is a God of deliverance who sees our state, who sees our either captivity to physical circumstances or our spiritual captivity. And that he is a God of exodus of deliverance who calls us out of that place of captivity into freedom. That's so good. I love that. And yes, like it's because these stories were retold, we we have to think that that was something that was coming back for them. So mm-hmm. I really love that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the well, story yeah, you goes on from it. there. Yep. You mentioned it already. Sarah is a complicated figure. So yes. let's keep going. Where are we, we going hold those things thing? in tension that she is both full of faith and also does this. So mm-hmm. we jump over to Genesis 16 and now Sarai, Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her. Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, 
where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Birlahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Beirut. So complicated story here, um, mm -hmm. but it ends with this beautiful encounter again between Hagar and the Lord. Mm -hmm. And this is even more significant because not only is she a woman um but she is an egyptian woman and so she mm -hmm. is um in so many ways like an outsider and she in this moment she called the name of the lord and so one of the first people that we have to name god is a woman who is an outsider and so this egyptian woman names the lord as the god of seeing and so mm -hmm. just so beautiful that the first person that God allows to name God's self is mm -hmm. a woman. And I think, um, even I just keep thinking about that. I think in part, because I grew up in a generation where we use the language of the God of Jacob a lot. Um, mm -hmm. and I think, gosh, why didn't I grow up in a culture more where we said the God of Hagar who sees mm -hmm. us, I think that would have been so powerful for me as a young woman, if I would have um, just grown up thinking about those kinds of things where we were, um, considering that idea that Hagar named the Lord and that it's recorded in scripture forever as that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. Okay. So this just popped into my head. I haven't connected these dots before. So I was thinking about this story that it ultimately is a warning against idolatry that, Sarah, Sarah and Abraham, I think are engaging in the idol of control that they mm -hmm. are doubtful. They're fearful that God will keep his promise. And so they're taking things into their own hands. Um, and they both, they're both, I think, complicit in that. And first of all, I think idolatry always leads to injustice and exploitation. So good that the idolatry of greed, of fear, of scarcity, I think we'll keep mm -hmm. talking about that. Um, causes us to react in ways that result in the exploitation of the vulnerable and, mm -hmm. and injustice. Um, and there are multiple Psalms. I'll put it in the show notes because I can't think of the reference off the top of my head. Um, but God talks a lot about idolatry dulling our senses, yes. that the idols of the nations are dead, that they are dead elements. Um, the idols of the nations are wood and stone. And when we worship them, we become like them. We become, we become, like them. We become dull of hearing. We become dull of sight and we become dead inside. And conversely to worship God, to worship the living God is to become alive. And so God is always telling the Israelites that he's the living God, that he's a God who sees a God who mm -hmm. hears a God who speaks. 
And so he's always putting himself in contrast to the idols of the nation that are dead elements that that bring death to those who worship them. And I love that Hagar is, is recognizing that again, mm-hmm. so intuitively she hasn't been taught. She doesn't know the yes. word of God. And yet the way that God is revealing himself to her, she's naming him as the living God, the God who sees that you are different from the idols of the nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's so stunning and so beautiful that she is naming the character of God and recognizing him like you are a God, like no other, because you are alive. Yes. It's incredible. That idea, truly you are the one who looks after me. And so even that picture of like, she's leaving because of contempt and because of being dealt harshly with as Mm -hmm. scripture says, um, but that she's now aware that there's a higher one who is looking after her. And so even in those moments of, um, of pain and oppression, she knows that there is one who's looking out for her. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie, <laughs> let's, let's talk a little more about Sarah and her actions and yes. just, yeah, the complexity of this. Yeah. So I think, um, well, one thing I want to say about this is that I think, and I think this, we can talk more about like the particularities of Sarah in this, but I think it's so easy to see um, maybe this story as one where, especially if you are an American white woman, I think we just so Mm -hmm. often see ourselves as these, as the people of scripture. Mm -hmm. And so when we're reading it and we see that, we see again, like we see them in our own image. Whereas, so we would say like, okay, God can't, that's not good enough for God that he has a child with Hagar. And we see it as something about Hagar or something about Ishmael. Whereas Mm -hmm. I really believe it's more about the fact that God cannot have a covenant with slavery. He cannot make Mm -hmm. a covenant forever with someone who is bound to slavery. God can't do that. And so I think, uh, it's important for us to see that in this story, because otherwise we just see Hagar as like, see, even God thinks she's an outcast. See, even God like doesn't want her child. Whereas actually he says, I'm going to take care of Ishmael forever. You don't have to worry about that. I'm going to take care of you forever too, but I can't make a covenant with slavery. I can't tie my name to that. And so, um, I just think it's really important because so often we're like, see, God doesn't like the people that I don't like. Whereas it's something (laughs) Uh so much deeper than that of God. God has to be pure and God is a God who loves justice. And so there's no way for him to say that he can make a covenant uh, forever with slavery. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think when we look at Sarai in this story, like, um, I think we have to see the complexity there and see that she is an oppressor in the story Mm -hmm. and, and that God is not saying, uh, that he agrees with her actions. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that's clear in the way that he meets Hagar, but, um, I think we, we do often kind of see that as a narrative of like, see, they are outcasts. Mm -hmm. So it's important for us to see, um, what's the bigger story that God's writing there. Yeah. Wow. Jamie, that's crazy. That blew my mind. Um, and I think going along with that, so 
something that can feel troubling uh, reading this passage is that God sends her back. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can feel, we can really rip that out of context and say like, oh, God wants her to remain a slave. And that's something that we can apply to other scenarios regarding slavery, which we cannot. Uh, But I think what's so important is that we won't read it today, but in chapter 21, she and Hagar and Sarah have another just altercation in their relationship. And really it's Sarah's part yet again, that Mm -hmm. she is continues to be threatened by Hagar. Um, And at that point, Sarah is the one who sends Hagar away. So in this chapter in 16, Hagar runs away and she's a runaway slave at this point. Like she's going to have to live looking over her shoulder. She doesn't have any resources. She doesn't have her freedom, but when chapter 21 comes, she is sent away willingly. She's freed. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that is what God was doing. I don't think he's sending her back to captivity. I think he's sending her back so that she can actually experience full freedom in the future. Mm -hmm. That's really good. I love that you pointed that out. Um, now that we've talked about the big picture story, I think it's important to say like the ways that, cause it in some ways almost sounds trivial. And yet we do this where we try to take control of a situation. And then when it doesn't work out the way that we wanted it to, we blame anyone and everyone that we can see. And so like it's Sarah's idea. And yet when it (laughs) happens, she's like, well, now I hate her. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so often where we, um, in our own lives have like tried to take control over situations. And then when it doesn't, you know, work out or whatever, we are looking for anyone to blame. And if we're honest, I think women often bear that blame more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And especially when we all find ourselves in scenarios where we feel some measure of powerlessness or marginalization, then we turn around and lash out to the person who's slightly less powerful than us. And that's usually almost always other women. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as you mentioned, our modern context, um, that's often white women then lashing out at women of color. Mm -hmm. And that is so sad and so harmful. And what sucks is Sarah more than anybody should understand Hagar's situation because she was just in sexual captivity in Egypt. Right. And she should be like, man, this is not cool. I was in her shoes. This is exploitation. I know what this feels like, and I don't want to do this to somebody else. But what sucks is she has allowed herself to be, I think, shaped by Mm -hmm. her oppression and to allow that narrative to control her or just like for her to believe that that's just how it is. And so then it makes it so much easier for her to turn around and do the same thing to somebody else and then, yeah, blame them for it. And that, I, I think that's absolutely the enemy wanting to divide us, wanting to distract us mm-hmm. so that we're not actually <laughs> pointing at the thing that the source of our oppression, we're just then like grasping for any straws of power that we can gain. And we're falling victim to that scarcity mentality. Like we talked about yes. in our previous episode, this idea of there can only be one of us. And so if you're, if I want it to be me, it can't be you. Right. And I have to elbow you out. Mm-hmm. 
this sounds so trivial, but it keeps coming to my mind. So I'm just going to trust that like someone needs to hear Mm -hmm. that it applies to even this level. And I think honestly, as uh, if you are a Christian woman, we get that scarcity mentality about all kinds of things. And I think we see it. I mean, this hits, it honestly hits what we talked about in the idol of relationships. And again, like painting some stereotypes here, but like Mm -hmm. that Sarai is seeing that she wants to be able to like have a child with her husband. And so Mm -hmm. that's ruling over her. And I think so often we do that in particular with relationships. And so we're like, listen, there are two hot single men at this church (laughs) and I'm gonna hate anyone who tries to date that one guy and like that sounds so silly and yet I've seen women really like tear up their lives because they really get in that place of seeing this scarcity mentality and the thing about it is it really clouds your vision and so it really is all you can see when you start to get into it and so I think the more that we can call it out and the more that we can say um, actually I don't live in that kingdom. I live in a kingdom of abundance. And so I don't have to live in that narrative and remind ourselves that there's such a wider story that we're a part of. I think the more we get out of it and we, we can live into that, that better story, whether it's like, listen, it's okay. If someone dates the only guy that you see at church or, um, or whether or not it's a, a really bigger scale, I think, we have to keep reminding ourselves of the story that we live in. Uh, that's really good, Jamie. I think that was absolutely worth sharing. Cause yeah, it, man, that, that is such a temptation that I think a lot of us can relate to. Yeah. And I think, I think in a, the good part about Sarah's story is that it can, we can be reminded that if we feel like we're in a place of barrenness or mm-hmm. like where the, if we feel like our ship has sailed, our chance is gone for whatever it is. Maybe it's a relationship. It could be something else, you know, it could be career, could be housing, you know, it could be anything that that's God's not limited by the limitations that we experience. Mm-hmm. So I do think the, this passage is a reminder to cling to God's promise. Don't cling yes. to what, don't cling to your circumstances and where you feel like all hope is lost. Cling to God, to God's promises that are bigger than the limitations that we see in our lives. So true. And that there's, that's not the end of Sarah's story. So Mm -hmm. her story goes on from there. And that again, God counts her as faithful. And so even, even in those moments. So, yeah, that's really good. I want to say one more thing about Hagar and Ishmael, um, because especially in, I think the Christian church in America, we have a pretty narrow view of Islam and of the Arab Muslim nation. And Ishmael is the father of Arab nations. Mm -hmm. And that's a really complex thing. And I do think we often paint this kind of us versus them picture and a very negative picture of Ishmael and kind of act like his existence is a mistake. And in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 16, when God is giving Hagar this 
in some ways prophecy about Ishmael's life that like Ishmael's life is going to be challenging. He's going mm-hmm. to feel like people are against him. And so he's going to want to be proactive. He's going to want to beat people to the punch because he knows that he is marginalized. Like he's mm-hmm. going to live uh, a life that is, that's going to be hard. And I, I want to call back to what you told us in episode one, Jamie, about descriptive versus prescriptive. Mm-hmm. And I don't think God is saying, well, this is my desire for Ishmael. I'm going to cause this to happen. I think that he's giving Hagar just a, a, like a heads up, um, a foreshadow of just saying like, just so you know, as you raise him and you're going to be a single mom, this is, these are things that will help Mm -hmm. you understand him and know how to guide him. Um, And I think Hagar and Ishmael give us an important window into there are situations in life where a pregnancy or a person's life can come about in a very harmful and painful way. Um, someone can be born in an abusive relationship or as a result of sexual violence. And I think our question can be, is that life a mistake? Like, is it a mistake that this person exists? And to me, I think Ishmael's story is saying the situation is can be harmful. That situation was exploitative. That doesn't mean that Ishmael's life is then condemned or defined by that, Um, that God can have a bigger story for someone than the conditions that brought them into the world. And so I, I want us to have a, a hopeful, gracious view of, of Ishmael and all of his descendants to not think maybe this shouldn't have happened. (laughs) Um, I think Abram and Sarah acted out of idolatry and doubt, uh, but I think God is still present, obviously with Ishmael and sees great value to him and that he is still part of um, God's promise that God promised Abram, any descendant that comes from you will be a great nation. And even in the midst of them pursuing that in a harmful and doubtful and idolatrous way, God's going to keep his promise. And he's going to make Ishmael a great nation and he's going to be with him. And he's still going to have hope for his people um, and for his descendants mm-hmm. forever. Uh, yes. And so I do just want us to hold on to that, that this isn't God making a mistake. It's not, um, these aren't mistakes of existence um, that God can work in circumstances that were less than ideal, but he can still redeem them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that the story of that is that he is a God of seeing and truly he is the one who looks after us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. All right. Thanks for letting me talk more about that. Thank you. That was really good. All right. So let's continue to Rebecca. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 25 after she and Isaac are already married. But I want to at least note that in Genesis 24, it's a long story of them meeting and becoming betrothed. It's a very um, romantic, (laughs) sweeping (laughs) epic of them meeting one another. And it is a very sweet story. Uh, But something that is really key is that Isaac is looking for a wife and uh, Rebecca fits the bill, but her family, and I think by extension, God, give her the choice to marry Isaac or not. And that's not necessarily something we see often, you know, usually women are just given into marriage and have no say. 
And so I think it is unusual and really sweet in Genesis 24, verse 57, her family, they said, let us call the young woman and ask her, do you want to go with him? Do you want to marry this man? And when she says, yes, they bless her and they support her and uh, support that marriage. But I think it's so key that she gets to say yes, that she gets to say yes to being part of this dynamic family. Yeah, especially since these are like the patriarchs and the matriarchs of our faith, the fact that she opts in here is, it's like an exclamation point is on it because of the role that they play in the story of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's read, I'm going to read Genesis 25 verses 19 through 23. So this is, again, an interesting story of a woman connecting directly with God. So we're hearing the generations that are coming from this family and Isaac prays to the Lord for Rebecca to have children and God hears them. And then beginning, well, let's see, actually, I will read that part. So here we go. Beginning in verse 19. So these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebecca, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. God God works through barren women a lot. Maybe we should do a whole episode about that. (laughs) And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So what I want us to notice to start with about this short chapter, this short section is Isaac does pray to the Lord for Rebecca to become pregnant. So we see him interacting with God, inviting God into their lives and their, their marriage and their family. But when Rebecca is she's pregnant with twins. They're tussling in her womb. (laughs) She doesn't say, Isaac, go ask God what's going on. She goes directly to God and inquires of the Lord. Hey, what's the deal? And God gives her this prophecy about Mm -hmm. her sons. He doesn't tell Isaac and then tell Isaac to tell her. (laughs) Um, He just is like, okay, yeah, great question. (laughs) Let me answer and let you know what's going on. This isn't just like highly active infants. They're actually, this is, um, emblematic of a bigger dynamic that they're going to experience in their lives. And so I just think that's so crucial. And I don't think that we ever really talk about the fact that it's Rebecca who goes to the Lord for insight and that she receives it directly from him. It's so important, especially, I mean, I really, hope that the overall story that people hear from us is a really charitable account to people who may disagree with us. But Mm -hmm. I mean, there have been some wild things said about the way that God really does speak. Like people really have taken this to mean like, oh, God really does speak to the husband more. And I just, Mm -hmm. I don't see that in scripture, like in these stories where, um, I think, it almost would make sense in some ways, just the way that the, the culture is, the way that the narrative is written. Um, and yet we have this story where she's, 
And she obviously feels full freedom. It doesn't sound to me like she was sitting in her room thinking for, you know, a while, like, am I allowed to go ask the Lord this question? It Mm -hmm. feels like she has a really free relationship where she says, something crazy is happening inside (laughs) of me. I need to go inquire of the Lord about this. And it doesn't, it feels like we're catching a glimpse of something that's a rhythm in our life. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. There's no indication that this would seem abnormal to her. She's just like, Oh, I'm going to ask God about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And especially with them being two sons, you would think kind of like how we talked about with Eve, that Eve names her two sons mm-hmm. that you would think, Oh, the father should be more invested and has a greater stake in what's going to happen to his sons, but that it's God who gives it, gives this prophecy to Rebecca about her sons. <laughs> and she has this insight and obviously she shares it with Isaac. Cause that's partly how we just know it's in scripture. She uh, extended it beyond just her own <laughs> <Yes>. memory. <laughs> um, but yeah, she just hears directly from the Lord and seems to take that as something fairly normal. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that's important that it doesn't, there's nothing in the text that tells us that we should see this as an anomaly, but rather that it's given to us. There's no commentary about the fact that she hears from the Lord. And so I think we're to take that as this isn't an anomaly. Like Mm -hmm. this is actually the way that the Lord wants to interact with his daughters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you have any additional thoughts about this passage? Not a ton. I just love that. Um, I mean, I think there's so much that can be said about these sons, but that's not really. I know. Same. (laughs) I'm like, I can hear someone like yelling about uh, Romans here, but, um, but alas, you can do that in your car. You can yell about Rome. I know I want to, I'm so tempted to just keep talking about generational patterns. Um, but again, maybe a future episode. Y'all can let us know if you want to hear more about that. (laughs) So, okay, let's continue to move on. So Jacob their so their son, well, one, they have twins, Esau and Jacob. It's a whole thing. You guys can read about it. (laughs) Jacob receives the promise. It is a whole thing. Wild story. Um, but so then Jacob wants to get married, looking for a wife, also a whole thing ends up being married to two sisters. He is tricked into marrying the older sister who is less physically attractive and then has to work seven years, seven additional years for his father-in-law in order to marry the sister that he wanted to marry Rachel. And so here I want to talk about Leah specifically, because I always feel so much sympathy for Leah because a man literally had to be tricked into marrying her. Mm -hmm. And that's a really crappy situation to be in that you're married to someone who's only there because of deception and wanted to marry your sister that he was actually in love with and finds more attractive than you. That's really sad that does damage to your (laughs) self-worth and your perception of yourself. Right. So, but I feel like as much as we see the deception there, 
it's another place where we get to see the difference of the way the Lord sees people versus Mm -hmm. the way that other people see them. And so as much as this is a corrupt story, we once again get to see the Lord moving in the midst of it and see the way that he really has a a tender heart towards her. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't I go ahead and read that? So we're in Genesis 29 verses 31 through 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren and Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben for, she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction for now, my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This is so beautiful and so heartbreaking Mm -hmm. in this chapter that every time she's like, maybe now he'll love me. And it, it's so tragic to me that this passage uses the word hated, that she felt hated by her husband, that she felt resented Mm -hmm. by her husband that, yeah, I just, to live with that day in and day out would just be so grueling and so demoralizing. And so to me, what I love about this is that God is seeing your husband may not love you. He may not be giving you the respect and the, the nurture and the care that you deserve, but I, the Lord will bless you. I will make you fruitful in a way that will give you honor in this culture. And in this time, yes, we've talked about women are not required to have children in order to be worthy and important contributors in God's kingdom. I think what God is doing specifically is he's not saying, oh, boys are the best, but I think he's saying in this culture and in this time, if you could bring sons into the world, you were greatly honored. And so I'm going to minister to you in a way that gives you great honor and Mm -hmm. that will then bring forth his people that will Mm -hmm. bring forth the nation of Israel, these people of promise, the chosen people, uh, but that he's kind of doing, accomplishing two things at once, accomplishing Mm -hmm. two goods at once that he's bringing forth his name, his promised nation in a way that also blesses Leah. And frankly, he doesn't have to do it that way. Like God could just like, okay, you're just gonna have a bunch of kids. I don't really care. (laughs) Like the importance is just having a bunch, but he's specifically doing it in a way that brings her favor and brings her a sense of feeling value and importance and honor in the eyes of others. Yeah. And I even think it makes me wonder about what that experience was like for her, because even from a young age, sons also kind of provided for their mothers. And Mm. so, um, I just think about where she wasn't getting protected by her husband, really. Mm -hmm. I think her sons were able to provide something for her that she wasn't receiving from her husband, which, um, in modern times that's called triangulation, but in the Bible, (laughs) super helpful, (laughs) different time, different time, different era. (laughs) 
<laughs> but, that's hilarious but I think anyone if you have read um scripture then you some of these names probably like sound familiar yeah. to you and so I do think it's important to say um if they sound important to you, that's because they are. So mm -hmm. all the times that you hear about Judah, it does, it really does come back to this. And so mm -hmm. if you are at all familiar with the old Testament, you probably are like, Oh, I think I've heard that name before. Um, and you're right. You have because of the greatness that comes from this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she has five sons. They are going to be part of the 12 tribes of Israel from Jacob will have sons with Rachel and with a couple of their women as well. Um, and then Joseph's sons will be kind of grafted into the 12, but Re uh, yeah, Leah specifically gives birth to Levi and to Judah who are going to be the two, honestly, let's be honest, most important tribes mm -hmm. in Israel's history, because the tribe of Levi is going to beget Moses and from Moses and his brother, Aaron, the entire priesthood. Mm -hmm. So the whole order of the priesthood in Israel for the rest of their history would come from one of Leah's sons. And then Judah is from the tribe of Judah is going to come David. And from mm -hmm. David is ultimately going to come Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so Leah is a matriarch of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that's incredible. Amazing. That's an incredible blessing that God is giving her, not just in the immediate, but this tremendous legacy that from her will come the Messiah. Mm -hmm. I've never thought about this. So, um, but I think those tribes are particularly tied to pure worship before Yahweh. Hmm. And so there's something I think really beautiful about a woman who the Lord was providing for in a really like tender and caring way that there's pure worship that comes from her lineage. Mm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm now like in my mind, visualizing the rest of their stories that the sons again, generational trauma um, <laughs> and generational patterns, these sons yet again have struggles with each other. They have rivalry and trauma and yeah, Judah sells his brother Joseph into slavery. Um, but then we see actually really beautiful generational healing that happens mm -hmm. amongst these brothers that Judah goes through a process of repentance where down the line, he's willing to trade himself for into slavery for the freedom of his brother. Yes. And we see his growth to become more humble and open and loving and how God raises him up to be the ancestor of Jesus, who is a brother who will give his life for the freedom of his brothers and sisters. Uh, and so I love that Leah gets to be part of that. She gets to be part of that okay. legacy of her immediate family, her immediate sons, bringing peace to these generational patterns of sibling rivalry and of tension and competition between the brothers mm -hmm. and that that healing then moves forward to create a foundation that Jesus would fulfill mm -hmm. that Judah is a lion's cub. And then Jesus becomes the lion of Judah. Yes. 
That's so lovely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shout out, Leah. You yes. did, you're doing amazing, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think we've, we've gotten to some good places here, but again, we want to reiterate that God is seeing and meeting and engaging with these women apart from their husbands. They don't Mm -hmm. have these mediated relationships where they can only communicate with God through a husband or through male headship, but that they are able to connect with him directly and personally. And that it's not just them reaching out to God multiple times. We're seeing God reaching directly to them um, without them even knowing to ask him sometimes like Sarah doesn't specifically ask God. Leah doesn't necessarily ask God. And he just wants them to know that he sees them, that he wants to be actively involved in their lives and that they can trust him to care for them and bring them to a place of flourishing and wholeness. And just, um, as a reminder of in a previous episode, we talked about how I believe that God really sees this not in a passive way that they are bearing children, that it's actually a really significant work in the eyes of the Lord. And that, um, it is a piece of what they're doing in the earth. And so I think it could be really easy to just kind of see them as like, I don't know, like incubators or something of God's Mm. story, but God doesn't see it like that. God really sees it as an active part of the story that God is writing. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. And their experiences with God are then woven into Mm -hmm. the fabric of Israel's history. Yes. That Sarah experiencing an exodus, a freedom from captivity and like Leah experiencing peace and like Mm -hmm. a healing of generational trauma that is going to be woven into their understanding of who God is as a people and their, their patterns and their functioning moving forward. Mm -hmm. So good. Wonderful. All right. Well, these aren't the only places that these women are talked about. They have wider Mm -hmm. stories. So if this has piqued your interest at all, I would encourage you to keep reading more about them, hear more about their other narratives um, in Genesis and where they're mentioned elsewhere. Next week, we are going to be moving into Exodus and we are doing a special bonus episode. Bonus! Hey! For International Women's yeah. International women's day, women's internet. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I struggling with Nailed it? International women's day. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, and we're going to be talking about the Hebrew midwives in Exodus one. So little sneak peek. You're welcome to read ahead if you want to, but we're going to be talking about a history of female resistance. And we're super excited about that. So we would love for y'all to join us next week. In the meantime, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you want to connect with us, feel free to do that on social media or through the Anchor website. We would always love to engage with you and hear from you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us and make sure that you subscribe. So you get that um, notification Mm -hmm. when we do come out with new episodes and we are so thankful that you're digging in with us.